Today we are going to be going through Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. A uh, little bit of difference in the words there, but both pointing to the same book. So the, the Song of Solomon and then the, the verbiage Song of Songs come as you, as you step right into uh, the first chapter, the very first verse. It kind of illustrates the importance, that repetition. And we'll see repetition a couple of times today. And we should really take note anytime repetition because... We'll also see some failures, and repetition is really helpful because it shows that there's some freedom and forgiveness, but it also highlights importance as well. Uh, and so we want to kind of live in amongst that understanding and enjoying the repetition, but then also walking through with it as well. What we're doing is going through our biblical survey review, right? And what we like to cover is some ground uh, information every single time. And so it's important to note this week, in addition to last week when we worked through uh, our books written by Solomon, a lot of the wisdom and literature books carry his name as authorship, uh, written in about 965 BC. Uh, on your note sheet, you can see that there's an outline to the book that kind of goes, and there's a, there's a key pivotal moment. If you look right after there uh, with chapter 5, verse 1, the marriage love. So Song of Solomon or Song of Songs is a book about love. And maybe we have that understanding, but we're not sure kind of if we've stepped into it a lot. And we're nervous to step into it because we're not sure. So helpful to have the, these outlines of the books and kind of what's in there. A Song of Songs uses a lot of poetic language. And so through that, to, to gain that understanding of like what's going on, let's take a high view of this. And the fact that when we welcome and come into, start into the book, we understand that these are two lovers that we're being introduced to as well as some other folks that we'll see in just a minute. And they are very much in anticipation and longing, looking forward to being married together. And that act is going to happen in kind of the second stage uh, of the book where you see it's, it's drawn out in the beginning of chapter 3 and worked through up and until 5. And then after 5, we get to a peak inside of their very early marriage and it's kind of interesting um, because it might not go as, as one would think. What we want to look at is the fact that there are some folks here that are highlighted. So there's, there's verbiage of my love, and that is to understand that this is written to the bride, the Shulmanite. So that is someone that, um, as a reference to authorship here, being Solomon, who you can see down there at the bottom of the screen, to understand that this is Solomon, someone, I think Brian talked about how many wives he had, right? So we're talking about love and wisdom. So, so wisdom makes sense that Solomon would be the author, but love seems a little bit odd because we know kind of of Solomon's past, right, with that. So let's jump here and talk about the author for a minute. Uh, so something interesting, this is not like the first time we've seen or been introduced to Solomon, right? We learn and we get introduced and see him in 1 Kings. And so when you go to 1 Kings chapter 3, we're introduced to Solomon, why he's so prevalent in the wisdom books. And it's because in 5 through 15, he's given, it's kind of, it's kind of set up, and Solomon is given the gift of wisdom and says, if it pleases the Lord that Solomon had asked this, what did he ask for? It says, give me your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern the people, 
that I will discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern these great, these, your great people? And so then the, the problem arises and the mismatch of why Solomon is the author that scratch, causes us to scratch our head. We see here in 1 Kings still, chapter 11, and if we go so, so into Solomon, so far into Solomon's reign, we see that things start to happen. Solomon accumulates things. Uh, his wisdom gives him access to uh, a lot of earthly things. The problem is Solomon also accumulates lives. And that's counterintuitive when we're looking at the book of love and song of Solomon. And so with that mismatch, understand that the very foundation of Solomon and his love starts from, and we're, that's what we get to read in the Song of Solomon. So what happens to him? I argue he gets a little Twitter-pated. So if you're familiar with the Disney convention, Twitter-pated is like this emotional like flutter. It's like, ooh. So it's, it's a tweak on love. It's not actual pure love. It's something that we are shamefully and, and sorrowfully going to interweave amongst the love that God has and explains for us in the book today. And that's because we're going to, as we see the path of God's love, we're also going to see something that's very different. And we're going to see what happens with love that has great power, but isn't placed properly or at the right time or to the right audience. And you see Solomon fell in love with women of different gods. And he ventured, and that drew his heart away. So if we, if we remember, remember back when we did like our walk through the Bible, right? We had like David who had whole heart, right? And then it was like Solomon. What happened to Solomon? Half heart bummer. Yeah. So Solomon started with a pure heart governed and, and led by that wisdom. And then he kind of moved away from it as he got a little too Twitter-pated. He got a little fixated on the wrong thing. So we are going to work through Song of Solomon today, but I'm going to give you a spoiler. It culminates in a very impactful layout of the power of what love is and some aspects of it. And so if you go down to your note sheets now, we're in the middle underneath that, and we're looking at Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. So can we read this together, please? So set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So this is the culmination of this book. It's, it's almost at the end it's the last chapter, and we're closing it down. And this is weaved and built too. And it's, what is this exemplar natures or these aspects of love? And so I made some notes as I was walking through this, and we'll talk about them here. The first one we see is the impact that love has on someone. Look at, look at the language here, a seal upon your heart. So a biblical seal is something very serious. I would akin, and we can kind of think a little bit of it like a, like a tattoo, but it means more than that because there's this establishment or relationship that comes with it. So it should be very impactful. And the person, when they are in true love, following the truth of it and the foundation of it from, we'll see in the very last example of where it comes from, 
they should be marked. You should be able to see that. So that's when it speaks about that seal. And then what is the limit of this? For love is as strong as death, jealous as fierce as the grave. The thing that I captured from that and wanted to kind of relay to you guys is that the limit of love should be the pure extension as far as one who is giving it can reach. Now I'm going to use that definition because it's going to come into great impact when we look later at our scarlet thread through Song of Solomon. But think about this, is that if I as a man am called to love and called to love unto the limits of my power, that being death. So when I walk into my marriage covenant with my wife, I'm called to love her unto death do us part, right? That's the limit of the control that I can have over that relationship. So it should be as limited only as I as a person am. And then it's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This is a really great testament to the fact of what the strength of true love is, as well as speaking to its source, right? So it's saying that the very flame of the Lord should be what kindles or what stokes and what embraces the love that we see in this Song of Solomon or see, have seen as we go through the Song of Solomon. And then to understand as we talk about waters, waters have an incredible power, right? They're basically unrelenting. But to say, to put that unrelenting water then against the fact that it cannot quench, we just talked about the fire and, and the coals in the verse just prior, right? And so the fact that it cannot even quench that, it speaks to the persistence that love should have and, and the ability to be able to withstand dashes or trials that would try to quench it. And then this last one speaks to the value that love should have. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That is to say that if we try to put a value, like a, a monetary value on love, that it would just taint the very idea of it. That it would just deprive it of the very nature of what it can be when it's true. That it's invaluable because it doesn't have these kind of limits that, that money does, that it has like association to it. Now, when I talked about that Twitter-pated, it's like something happened with Solomon that he, he forgot these as he went. And as we, as we wrote down these aspects, these characteristics, and as we look at love or embrace and this kind of idea of marriage or intimacy throughout the Bible, we can see that as one or many of these things changes and we move away from it, a number of things goes awry. So this is a word cloud. Basically, it hits as, as the larger the word is, the more prevalent it is. So I did this uh, word search through and I, I left out Song of Solomon, because that's what we're going to talk about, and the fact that it has an embrace of the true and valued nature of love. And I looked through the rest of the books of the Bible, and I took down kind of the notes of how often things hit that weren't the, the very easy, like, and he knew her, so a husband knowing his wife, right? But to describe and, and emphasize a little bit more of what is going on in that love relationship when more often than not, one of those things that we just talked about, those characteristics, is removed. This is what we see. It's not exactly what I would call pretty. But then, 
I really like, and I, I plug a decent amount, Blue Letter Bible, they also do these word cloud things. And so I didn't have to make a word cloud for Blue Letter Bible. They already had one for me. I provided it here to you. So this is sourced from Blue Letter Bible. So this is the word cloud associated with Song of Solomon. So as we look at the love and the descriptions that we're studying this week, this is what we see. It's a lot different, isn't it? Because of the base, because of the foundation that it's built upon, those flames of the Lord that we just read about at the culmination of the book in chapter 8. So we're going to go through, and Song of Solomon can be read in two different main ways. You can read it in a sense of a literal, it's poetic, so you can read it in a sense of literal and, and get its, its meaning and its understanding and its points of application. And then we can take it and read it allegorically as well and be able to understand the full impact as we look at the perspective of it in the whole biblical story, right? Weaved throughout all of the pages of the Bible. And so don't worry, these are absolutely your blanks, but they're gonna be headers up throughout the, the rest of the sermon. So you don't have to like jot them all down now. They're not gonna go away. But we are gonna start in that literal reading and talk about some of these aspects. Now, um, there's definitely some, some depth to unpack here. So it's the trouble, like, I've really enjoyed these surveys that we've been going through, but by gosh, by golly, there's so much more to unpack than to be able to understand that we are going through a book of the Bible every Sunday morning. So please take some notes here, but I'd encourage you as an individual, particularly for this one with your spouse or as a life group to go through and kind of study a little bit further. But one of the very first things that hit me, again, because of the level of repetition that you see, is this call, there's three times a statement made that is an exact quotation. Now I have the dots here because there's different um, descriptors that's put in the middle, but there's this always this exhortation and then this uh, command almost. It's, it's more like a mantra because of how it's repeated, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The whole foundation of the book built on love is to make a distinctive mark that it has a proper timing. It has a very given direction of when it is to be fully embraced in the intimacy of marriage into sexual relationship. And so twice, early in the book, if we look back at where it happens in the timeline, twice pre-marriage, this statement is issued. And then once in 8.4, at the very end of the book, it's also given. And I think that's really important because to me that speaks to the fact that, hey, uh, I'm telling you this again because that wasn't a mistake. I don't regret that decision. No, indeed, I am encouraging you that I was very much benefited from this. And I'd encourage you to do the same. It's a reminder, basically, of that call that's given twice earlier in the book. So again, we see it in chapters 2 and 3. And then at the end where there's this summaries that are given, it's like, don't forget about this. Again, repetition, it's important. Put it of value. So the proper timing of, of what? Of intimacy. When I showed that word cloud, it differed a lot from the, the two, right? They differed a lot. And so that is to understand that we see throughout the Bible a lot of ways that love and intimacy has gone wrong. And we don't even have to, we certainly should, but we don't even have to look at the Bible. We can just look around us right now and see that. 
right? Those aspects of love have been taken maybe slowly one by one away, and each time it gets further, I have in the notes, like recreated, right? But it can't, we cannot recreate that as well as our creator has, right? His immaculate and perfect design. And so then when we look at intimacy to be able to say, is that something or how do we, as we sit in marriage relationships, a lot of us, certainly not all of us, and that's okay because we'll talk about it in a second. But as we sit in marriage, is that something that we should be shy about, worried about? Where does that fall then and how can we know what to and how to embrace? And there's this really great, again, poetic language, but there's this really great unpack immediately. So it's, it's an encouragement of uh, excitement right after the marriage in 5.1, where there's the culmination of the marriage and the consummation of it that we read. And so it's really neat at the end of chapter four, the bride, she basically comes in and welcomes her husband's embrace, right? Before, when we saw in verses, in chapters two and three, there was this idea, this fondness of it, but this like, please wait, there's a proper time, right? And that goes down. The marriage happens and that stop gets to be lovingly walked right past. When we go from, from chapter four and when we walk into the marriage in chapter five, we just see that it's welcomed, that it's embraced and encouraged. And there's no shame in it. This is something that's rejoiced. And this is pretty neat. We'll cover it in just a second. So hang this idea up. But it's rejoiced and encouraged not just by the two Solomon and his wife, but also others. We see these references of others throughout the book. And again, if you hold on one second, we'll talk about that. But it's not just like this, like uh, two people kind of staring at each other and enjoying this. The whole idea, the concept of properly engaged intimacy in marriage is celebrated in the book. Now, here's a one that I had fun with. So if you, as you read through, it's poetic language, and there's a lot of descriptions in the book. And so uh, I, I Googled this because I, I was like, what would this look like if someone looked like this? So if you read through, and there's a section where Solomon describes the beauty of his bride, hair like goats, neck like a tower, eyes like a dove. Oh, that's a, that's a gorgeous woman right there. Gentlemen, if you would be as so bold with me, please enjoy this exercise. Go ahead, if, if you have the happenstance that your wife is sitting next to you, go ahead and, and just like grab her hair and be like, oh, it's soft as a goat's hair. And just see how she's wooed in your eyes. All right, so I, I just some, but understand this, that that what we should do is properly look at this in context to say that that was absolutely an attribute, I'm not gonna take the time to describe it right now, that was sought out back then. And this was absolutely, 100%, this wasn't like a joke to them. This was given as like a true mark, something that he really appreciated. And it's not just Solomon to his bride, it's also the bride to Solomon. They spend time building each other up. There's a lot you talk about repetition. I pulled out two verses, one quoted from each. But a lot of this book is spent with, with this husband and wife or, or pre-marriage, right? With these two that are engaged, 
supporting and building each other up. And I'm like, man, that should not be ignored as we highlight this book. There's something very purposeful there that they are spending time, not just shallow compliments either, like, hey, your hair is nice. But, but listen to this, though. There's, he's spending time, they're both, spending time thinking about these. They're spending time then telling them this. So they're like, these aren't just like, hey, you look good today. Looking cute. Look at those eyes. It looks just like a dove. There's, there's thought behind this. And so it's not just shallow support. Not that there's anything maybe wrong with a compliment, right? But they're spending time supporting each other and building each other up. There's not really that much of a negative attitude carried almost anywhere throughout the book of Song of Solomon. And I think that's pretty distinctive because as it's highlighted and put emphasis on as a book of love and what an example of marriage should be, I really like that idea and that concept. That, that these two people, not only certainly are they enjoying intimacy, but there's other aspects of that relationship that they are fostering. That of building each other up. And it's not just physical character either. Uh, they each go through and give support of their, their character, not just their, what they physically see, but their full character. And then here's a jump. It's supported by other people. Like they tell other people. They're not just staring at, so like I'm not just staring at Laura and saying, hey, really like those eyes like a dove you have. I'm like going over and saying like, hey, Dave, did you see Laura's eyes today? They look like a dove. But, but the idea is that you're not just building your spouse up to them, but you're kind of like, you're kind of like exploring and getting excited about your spouse to other people. Because guess what happens? Like in a very good way, that word is going to get around. And if you think you directly building your spouse up is a pretty good thing, think about the impact that other people hearing you build your spouse up and then how that would foster them and maybe their marriage. But then that word getting back to your spouse, I mean, I think in terms of brownie points, that's a pretty big one. And then as we talk about other people, I wanted to take like a distinctive mark and put this in here. Because this book is, I think, if I would guess, let's say around like 75 or even 80% of just Solomon and his bride speaking. But every once in a while, about six or seven times in the book, we get this, this uh, if your Bible has like a title, it's like others. Because this is almost like a play. If you read it through, it's like Solomon, and then the Shulmite, or the beloved, and the loved, right? And so then every once in a while, there's these others that are stuck in there. And so, again, this isn't just a book. It's focused on two people, but it's not just only these two people. So these mentions of others, and if you look at the role that they have throughout the book— each and every time, again, I have one example here, um, but if you're curious and you care to write numbers down quickly, they also show, they show up in 1, 4, 1, 11, 5, 9, 6, 1, 6, 13, and then in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. So if you look at those, though, they're either examples of direct encouragement or like for preparation, because it's sometimes it's like, hey, how can we help? This is like pre-wedding, kind of obviously. But this is pre-wedding. How can we help and support you guys in this? Or they're asking questions, but they're not like questions of doubt, right? They're questions that encourage and cause development of the marriage, of, of the characters with each other. 
So it's not to say that like there's no questions and they should always just be like cheerleaders with pom-poms, right? But it is to say that they're engaged more so than just like a, yeah, go get them, right? Again, there's like empty compliments. That's not, that's not the case with the couple and that's not the case with the others. They care, they are actually leaning in and wanting to support this couple. And so I really thought that that was something worth paying attention to because as we as a church, right, we say that we value strong families and essential to the core of a strong family is a strong marriage. And so to be able to understand and support a teaching on, on marriage, but leave the aspect of like, hey, let's support each other out. I get to do that, but only and also based off of biblical context to see as we look through the Song of Solomon and these many examples. It's really um, enjoyable to be able to see that and see these other people supporting the marriage. Now, I'm sorry to say that it's not all roses and rainbows or unicorns or whatever emphatic happy thing you would want to stick in there. If you're verse tracking, the marriage was consummated in 5.1 and in 5.3 there's a warning of laziness. I was like, man, I got one verse. This was supposed to be an example of, it's okay, it's all right. Just watch, because the rest of the book, as you read it, as you go home and you do your homework and you read it, you get to see how this develops. But here's what happens. In 5-3, or in 5-2, sorry, rather, there's a, there's a knock at the door, the husband's knocking at the door, and the bride is slow, we'll say, to answer the door. She knows that the door is being knocked upon and she knows that it's her husband, but she's a little lazy. Now, I am drawing a distinction that it's the female, mainly because it's written in the book, but also, if you give me pause and don't tune me out, ladies, please, 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 I'm gonna draw a parallel that's, that's okay. I'll make it okay. So give me 10 more minutes, not even, just give me seven, and I'll get you there, all right? So, so the woman is, is a little lazy, and she's a little slow to respond. She's not fully embracing that, again, so soon afterwards, because she's a human. But what happens in the marriage is that the man continues to pursue, and there's reconciliation. So there's a, there's a laziness, there's a separation from laziness, but then there's reconciliation because there's a continued pursuit and a care. And so as we think about that and we see that in 5.3, I make note of that. You're like, geez, David, come on, give the ladies a break. We could have gone through this with those other points. They were pretty nice. Just, again, just, just hold on because what we're gonna do today, right? I, I said we were gonna look at the book from a literal sense, but we're also gonna understand this in the larger picture. And that is to say that throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is parallels made to first the Jewish people and their covenant with God, and then later, and as we, as we reach into the New Testament, Christ and the bridegroom of, as the bridegroom of the church. And so if you jump to Jeremiah 2, which is pretty neat because that's coming up, so if you stick around for three more weeks, uh, Brian is going to be teaching on Jeremiah, so I'm going to like give him an intro like three weeks early. But if you go to Jeremiah, what you can see in there, Jeremiah and a couple other, other of the prophets, they paint a picture, and I'll leave out a descriptor because we'll build it as we go through the prophets, but spoiler, it's, it's not a great one, uh, of, of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, and their relationship with God. And so God, in this allegorical description, 
God is acting in both in Old Testament and New Testament, and the, the people are the, the wife or the bride. So we are the bride, the church is the bride in the New Testament, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And so there, it didn't even take me seven minutes, is the reference to why it matters and I, worth pulling out the laziness because we're gonna see that here as we look at the Jewish people and then as we look at the church. So in Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 2 verses 12 through 13, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the foundation of living waters. And two, they have hewn out cisterns for themselves that cannot hold water. This is, as we look back at what we talked about, the foundations or the the true example of love, right? And we talked about where it comes from. This is God's warning through Jeremiah to his people to say the foundation of living waters, the example that we had was the coals in uh, chapter eight, right? The coals and the foundation of it and its emptiness. That's, That's what happens when we take out God out of the love equation of those when we walked through those verses in chapter eight, verses six and seven, right? When we took one of those away and we saw how far it stepped from God's design of, of true love. And man, if you go on and read like into chapter three, and I, I won't spoil it, but some of those words of adultery and things like that, that's where these come from. Those aren't all just applied to the marriage of a man and a wife. This is God calling out and saying, hey, you adulterous people. And so that's where the impact of Song of Solomon comes and it first applies to us in our marriages and then so much larger applies to us now, not just the Jewish people, but us as a church. So turn with me to Ephesians 5 and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read through this and and ask you guys just to consider it slightly because I want to make time for some prayer today. But I want to provide this context here that is in Ephesians. As, as, as I read through this, please pay attention to the parallels that are given several times to Christ and the church as husband is to wife. So those are the emphasis to watch. As I read, you guys can take mental notes of those and the parallels. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself as its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I'm going to pause here. Do you guys remember when we looked at chapter 8, I think it was in verse 6, And I made a distinction to use language that I can love to the extent of my power as a man. 
if you look at this now and we understand the full context that as Christ is the bridegroom of the church, we can see that Christ is not limited to death. Right? So just let that sink in. Enjoy that thought for a moment. For no one has ever hated his flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to the Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So again, there's... There's a lot to unpack there in Ephesians 5. What I wanted to provide was the parallels and that runs deep and consistent through the word of God about the caring nature that we should have for our wives and our spouses, wives should have for the husbands, but that go beyond that. I don't mean and say that to diminish that because marriage is important. We studied a whole book on it today but to say that it gives us a great availability to understand the larger context of our relationship to the church and to Christ. So I want to take a couple of minutes as we close today and ask us all to do an application exercise. I wanted to leave a couple of minutes for this, and we have that, so that's awesome. We're going to get to do that. So we're going to do this just as we studied Song of Solomon today. So we're going to take a few moments for prayer. And I would encourage you, if your spouse is present, please pair up with them. If you have your whole family present, uh, you have some older kids or something like that, that's pretty awesome to be able to see and welcome them, so that's fine too. But what I'd really like to see is spouses focus on each other. Um, I will share maybe a little uncomfortably, but too quickly, that I don't pray with my wife nearly as much as I should. So take a moment here. Allow my encouragement to hit deep, please, and just take a moment and pray with your wife. If you don't have a spouse here, you can do a couple of things. If you don't have a spouse here, you can, and you have a spouse, you can still pray for them. And if you find yourself in a situation of, of almost spouse, I think you could pray for them as well too. And if you find yourself single today, take time to pray in the contemptness and the scenario that God has you in. And I don't mean that trivially at all. I don't have to certainly have time to unpack, but as we look, there's a, there's a great exhortation that Paul has about the emphasis and the capability that being single has. So I don't mean that at all to be contrite, but I do mean that you have absolutely a role too and you're not forgotten in this scenario as we pray. But then please walk through as you do that. Everyone leave time to start walking through that, right? So pray and support each other as a marriage and then pray for the marriages that you know in the church and, and outside of the church. And then take that time to develop that the whole way to em embrace the deeper relationship that you hope and are encouraged to have with the church and the bridegroom of Christ. So let's say about five minutes, please, and, uh, and try to walk through this if you would, and then I'll come up and close us all together. Father, as we continue to pray uh, this morning, God, I thank you for the ability even just to do so. 
God, I thank you for the examples that we find and can stand on in your word. God, examples of how to be uh, emphatically just uh, enamored with our spouse. But God, so much more than that, how we truly love them uh, and the depths at which we should. God, and the ways that you have already walked that out in the relationships um, that you've put throughout your word. But God, then also how we take the context of that and be able to understand how that should help us um, to walk out our relationship with our church body, God, and with you. God, that I would seek after you as much as I seek after my spouse, that they both um, be marks uh, that I seek after. I thank you for the love um, in all of this that you continually give to us that as lazy as we may be, um, God, that you're always there willing to uh, re-embrace us. Amen.